Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media, a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with Jordan Myers of the podcast Plato's Cave and That's BS. Our mission is to inspire lifelong learning by providing open access educational material across new media platforms, similar to the one you're listening to the show on. If you would like to learn more, support our efforts, or join the organization, you can do so at muckrakermedia.org. That said, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. So please subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform or podcatcher you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening, please subscribe and review. And with that, on with the show. We're here, episode 48, The White Slave Traffic Act. I sat down to write an episode about the Everly Club, an infamous Chicago brothel whose proprietors were sisters. However, as I researched, the project morphed into a snapshot of prostitution, a series of moments from the decline of brothels to the rise of the modern pimp. But even working towards that aim, I realized there was yet another step deeper for me to go. The project again morphed into a discussion of the legacy of the White Slave Traffic or Man Act of 1910. So that's what we're focusing on, the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910. That said, if you got excited at my mentioning the Everly Club, brothels, pimps, whatever, no need to worry. Those topics are still present throughout the episode. Moreover, the White Slave Traffic Act seems representative of a trend of anti-vice activism that saw its peak between the years 1888 and 1919 with the passage of the Volstead Act, which effectively ushered in the prohibition of alcohol in America, which worked out so well. So I bet you know where this episode will go tonally. You see, the wave of anti-vice activism we're discussing was not merely a journalistic phenomenon relevant only to the halls of power and to activists, but, but the White Slave Traffic Act permeated throughout popular culture and society by and large. For example, in 1913, at 10 cents for admittance, you could see, according to the poster for the event, quote, the most graphic exposure of the white slave traffic ever attempted. It was a film called The Inside of the White Slave Traffic. I know, they had a knack for titles, and it boasted, according to the poster, a $20,000 production budget. And remember, this is 1913. Purportedly, the film was produced by the sociologist Samuel H. London, based on notes and observations from an investigation of that dreaded white slave traffic. This is an early example of an exploitation film with a message, air quotes you can't see, and as such, it promised audiences those salacious and dirty details, which the film itself, of course, does not explicitly show. The film is all empty promises. It's kind of like my stepdad. You see... Again, to the film's poster, quote, the photo play was seized and stopped by the Seattle police at the Melbourne Theater last week. It was afterward released without prejudice, and at the urgent solicitation of reform workers in that city, it has been engaged for a return date at the same theater. That quote was a rather roundabout way to say that the police shut this movie down when it came out, but it's backed by popular demand. So it was a film that was meant to show the inside of the white slave traffic. The poster, I must also note, is more of a press release in bold type than anything recognizable in the halls of cinemas today. You see, the question of white slave traffic, and arguably of vice more broadly, was and is not just a political, journalistic, or reformist question, although it can be. But it was a a popular question, whose answers reflect our morals and our judgment as a society. Therefore, my options considered, 
it seemed like a logical place to focus our attention. I'm Thomas Thompson, and these are the pieces of the past overlooked in polite society. These are the stories of the dispossessed, the criminals, the hapless victims, and the callous perpetrators through whom we see the most base aspects of our shared humanity. It's an exploration of those things that make us uncomfortable. This is Dirty History. Episode 48, A Gaudy Circus, The White Slave Traffic Act Considered. Passed on the 25th of June, 1910, the White Slave Traffic or Man Act sought to outlaw the transportation of any individual across interstate or foreign lines for, quote, prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. Violating the act saw penalties of up to $5,000 or five years imprisonment. The penalties doubled if the woman was under the age of 18. The term white slavery, with air quotes you can't see, had its origins in the 1830s. It mostly resonated with Americans, especially those involved in the various labor movements of the time. The term, as it was used by those workers and newspapers, served two distinct purposes. The first was to relate in very strong terms the inequities of the industrial worker. The second was to differentiate the workers from what came to most Americans' minds circa 1830 when you mentioned slavery, which is blackness. It seems to me that the term white slavery saw its use become more popular concurrent with the more continental European term of wage slavery. To citizens of the United States, it seemed important to reconcile the racial dimension whilst relegating themselves to a vulnerable position both economically and culturally. If you were to look at newspapers coming out of labor movements and of more radical democratic presses, you see Wage slavery, as the dominant term, followed by slavery of wages, and of course the occasional mention of wage slavery. Of this trend, Norman Ware, in his book The Industrial Worker, wrote, quote, The term wage slave had a much better standing in the 1840s than it does today. Ware, of course, published his classic in 1924, so when he says today, he means 1924. It was not then regarded as the empty shibboleth of the soapbox order. This would suggest that it suffered only the normal degradation of language, not that it is a grossly misleading characterization. However, in noting that wage slavery as a term followed the path of use and disuse so common in language, we find that Wage slavery and white slavery are not interchangeable at all, but in fact have distinct meanings and power. When someone says wage slavery and someone says white slavery, they do not mean the same thing. We should not use them interchangeably. For example, often those referred to under the interchangeable white slave or wage slave would be tenant farmers or debtors, otherwise people who do not earn wages. Therefore, the argument follows that the white slave is not an adequate description, or at least not as adequate a description as wage slave. But this is linguistic play. This is just semantics at this point. The real matter at hand was described perfectly by Ivor Bernstein, who pointed out in his review of the book Wages of Whiteness, quote, Whiteness functioned for workers of white skin color as a public and psychological wage that compensated in part for a low monetary wage. The tragic corollary was a clouding of the vision of white workers who identified themselves as white free labor, that is to say, as not black and not slave. 
intended as a result of the privileges and pleasures of whiteness to evade rather than fully challenge class exploitation. And it is this distinction that puts into plain terms what the invocation of white slavery in the press may mean, as it was clearly recognized as a powerful rhetorical device, but one that also carried with it a degree of shame and discomfort for the user who applied to oneself. That said, one could put the wool over their eyes and say, I have no money, no prospects, and hardly any work, but at least I'm white. You see, whiteness was a coping mechanism for many of the lot who fell into that that white free labor category. White slavery as a term was meant to shock people out of that coping cycle and into the reality of class exploitation while also maintaining racial separation. At least, that's what it was originally meant to do. The term is, of course, co-opted by anti-vice activists and white slavery polemicists, who are two distinct groups with two distinct agendas, but there is, there is some overlap. An example of this is that I generally dislike them both. But this co-opting of white slavery as a term would lead to the powerful imagery seen in the White Slave Traffic Act. The villain has moved from exploitative industry to a pervasive fear of immigrants stealing off white women for the purposes of amorous affairs, prostitution, or worse, sex trafficking. White slavery in its original labor force use was complicated, as we just laid out, but for anti-vice activists, it was literal. Edwin W. Sims, a Chicago anti-vice activist, said of the system, quote, Literally thousands of innocent girls from the country districts are every year entrapped into a life of hopeless slavery and degradation. White slave traders have reduced the art of ruining young girls to a national and international system. A personal note, I dislike when people say literally when they mean figuratively. Like, I literally want to die when I hear that. See, that was an example. Anyway, words have power. However, it's our use of words that can render them near meaningless. White slavery as a term has seen a trajectory that I would say is uncommon for many words in that it was a powerful yet racially motivated device used by various distinct groups carrying various distinct meanings, but all the while misleading and clunky in that the phrase is precisely one word too long. It is in moments, like the passing of the White Slave Traffic or Man Act, that we see the raw power of words. The half-life may be short, but when the phrase White Slave Traffic is invoked at the height of its power, you were immediately supposed to see poor white women restrained in barns and basements being raped repeatedly. You are supposed to picture that woman as your wife, your daughter, your mother or sister. You are supposed to be fearful angry, and of course, supportive of the law. And I am not sure that at the time, that was a hard thing to do, be fearful and support the movement. As I said, white slavery as a phrase by 1910 had a history in labor movements, thereby placing the anti-vice movement in a broader progressive movement that was staunchly anti-monopolism. Think of it like the Christopher Nolan movie Inception. There is a movement within a movement within a movement. And each one of those three movements, while independent, can still affect one another. You're three movements deep. The white slavery scare is the linchpin of the anti-vice movement, which use language common to the progressive movement's anti-monopolism, which placed brothels and saloons and sex trafficking as a vice trust, similar to the money trust or banking trust, thereby playing on Americans' fears of race, powerlessness, and corporate centralization. In other words, the White Slave Traffic Act was a potent combination of many Americans' fears and worries, however unfounded. 
Therefore, doing this episode on the White Slave Traffic Act is not studying some one-off example of legislative racism or conspiracy, but a study of the structures of anti-vice activism as it runs amok. The White Slave Traffic Act is a microcosm of social, cultural, and economic panic at the start of the 20th century. So let's put into context this act in its particular language, which outlawed the transportation of any individual across interstate or foreign lines for, quote, prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. The act elicited much debate and still does. The first question, what is the legal definition of prostitution, debauchery, and immoral? At a glance, it seems that the inclusion of the phrase immoral purpose leaves law enforcement agencies much discretion in carrying out the Mann Act. Which brings up the next question. Was the law targeting vice in America broadly or commercialized vice specifically? Because there is a difference. I saw one case recounted in the Virginia Law Review that shed some light on this question. It follows, quote, It was admitted that the woman who accompanied the defendant from California and Nevada did so voluntarily. And there was no claim on the part of the prosecution that the defendant intended to prostitute the woman for pecuniary profits. The counsel for the defendant contended that the White Slave Traffic Act should not apply to the case because it was designed to suppress and punish commercialized vice only. However, the Supreme Court held the defendant guilty. There you have it. The Supreme Court ruled that not only was it a federal offense for you to cross state lines with the idea of prostituting a woman, but it was also a federal offense to cross state lines in order to make a woman a mistress or concubine, even if she was a consenting adult. An affair, at least across state lines, is at this time, for all intents and purposes, illegal. You see, according to the law, the woman was bound by debt to her coercer. The woman, as implied by the law and illustrated by the case I just recounted, was not seen as a reliable source of information to confirm or deny if she had consented, and even then, it didn't seem to matter much to prosecutors what the woman said. The act effectively removed a woman's agency to consent and carry out relationships not bound by marriage. This was in the name of anti-vice, and supposedly had society's best interest at heart. The stories Pouring out of cities, described drugged women, exploited, locked in debt, and, or in some cases actually kidnapped and enslaved. You see, the women were viewed as innocent, to the point of being naive, and were tricked and overwhelmingly white in these stories. But this disproportionate attitude, that it was white women who were plied into prostitution and sexually assaulted, does not necessarily ring true. In fact, Read Estelle Friedman's Redefining Rape, Sexual Violence in the Era of Suffrage and Segregation. Read Jordan Winthrop's White Over Black, or bear with me, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's article, African American Women's History in the Meta Language of Race. It should be apparent which group's interests were served and which group's interests were ignored by the White Slave Traffic Act. And while the White Slave Traffic Act did not stop and start with prostitution in America, it nonetheless left an irrevocable mark on the world's oldest profession. A mark, I may add, that only made the profession more exploitative and dangerous. It was a net failure on the part of the U.S. government and a shameful mark on the history of civil liberty. Now, that isn't to say that prostitution prior to the wave of activism against it was not a coercive and exploitative market. It was. I want to make that clear. In a July 6th, 1885 article of the Pall Mall Gazette, we see an example of how real legislation to prevent trafficking was necessary, but also how the legislation passed undermined that stated goal. As described by an ex-brothel keeper about recruitment, quote, 
did they begin willingly? Some. Others had no choice. How had they no choice? Because they never knew anything about it till a gentleman was in their bedroom and then it was too late. I or my girls would entice fresh girls in and persuade them to stay out to too late till they were locked out and then a pinch of snuff in their beer would keep them snug until the gentleman had his way. Another example comes from George Riley Scott's History of Prostitution, which borrows from a 1909 report on importing women for immoral purposes. Quote, A French girl seized in a raid of a disorderly house in Chicago stated to the United States authorities that she was approached when she was but 14 years of age, that her procurer promised employment in America as a lady's maid or a companion at wages far beyond any that she could ever hope to get in France. She came with him to the United States, and upon her arrival in Chicago, she was sold into a house of ill fame. These stories were shared as examples to illustrate recruitment into prostitution as a manipulative maneuver. It could involve drugging, it could involve coercion or threatening, all of which are highly immoral things to do and essentially constitute sexual assault. The coercer, in these cases, received financial gratification and perceived power over the coerced. They profiteers of sexual assault, if you will. And stories like this, of course, send shockwaves through the United States legal system. Edwin W. Sims, United States District Attorney in Chicago, testified before that same commission that put out the 1909 report on importing women for immoral purposes, which is a mouthful. In his testimony, he focuses on traffickers working at U.S. borders. This is what he describes, quote, The airlings of this traffic are stationed at certain points of entry in Canada, where large numbers of immigrants are landed to do what is known in their parlance as cutting out work. In other words, these watchers for human prey scan the immigrants as they come down the gangplank of a vessel which has just arrived, and they spot the girls who are unaccompanied by fathers, mothers, brothers, or other relatives to protect them. The girl who has been spotted as desirable and unprotected is properly approached by a man who speaks her languages and immediately offers her employment at good wages, with all expenses to the destination to be paid by the man. Most frequently, laundry work is the bait held out sometimes housework or employment in a candy shop or factory. The object of negotiations is to cut out the girl from any of her associates and to get her to go with him. Then the only thing is to accomplish her ruin by the shortest route. If she cannot be cajoled or enticed by promises of an easy time, plenty of money, fine clothes, and the usual stock of allurements or fake marriage, the harsher methods are resorted to. In some instances, the hunters really marry their victims. As to the sterner methods, it is, of course, impossible to speak explicitly beyond the statement that intoxication and drugging are often resorted to as a means to reduce the victims to a state of helplessness and sheer physical violence is a common thing. This is obviously horrifying to hear. Sims provides a testimony meant to expose the inner workings of how sex traffickers find victims. And Sims avoids hyperbole by not giving figures or guesses of figures. Can we be sure that what he described was likely the experience of many women? Most likely, without a doubt. And I think the other passages illustrate that. Are there glaring blank spaces in his testimony? And of those that we've heard prior, you better believe it. Mara Keir wrote succinctly on the matter, quote, Anti-vice reformers were not blue-nosed Puritans sniffing out immorality just to keep young urbanites from having fun. Instead, they were urban leaders who consistently condemned what Richard Hofstetter called those two bright noirs of the progressive mind, the machines and the trusts. The white slavery scare was more than the hysterical expression of middle-class fears of urbanization, immigration, and women's increased mobility. 
When white slavery writers compared municipally tolerated vice to big business, they expressed a deep-seated antipathy towards the exploitative interest in government-granted privilege. Neither rhetorically peripheral nor politically ineffectual, anti-vice reformers use the white slavery scare as a catalyst to clean up municipal government and to close down red light districts. In the end, the vice trust metaphors demonstrate just how progressive anti-vice reformers really were. All told, the dynamic between the madam and prostitute in the brothel is far different from the pimp and the prostitute on the street. There are many examples of brothels owned by women in which the madams provided education to the working women, health services. You would have to apply for the job and be interviewed under no false pretenses. And some brothels were of the earliest integrated places in America. Yes, in the eyes of activists and most average Americans at the time, legislation was necessary as the vice market was essentially unregulated. However, no laws on the books have much changed that. If anything, the profession was driven deeper underground to become increasingly unregulated, allowing manipulative pimps to fill in for perhaps once reputable madams. That's not to say all madams are reputable, as we heard in some of those prior quotes. But no longer are girls able to perform their services inside a building owned, operated, and lived in by numerous associates. But they are on the streets and in motels, allowing for predatory practices to be the norm. At base, historians have argued over whether white slave traffic was real, imagined, or hyperbolic. But I, and this may be a radical thing to say, don't see the importance of that point when compared to the study of the structures in place that allow legislation like the White Slave Traffic Act to pass. And then looking at the effects those acts had on American society and culture. That said, I think viewing white slave traffic as a hyperbolic statement is likely the safest bet. Were women picked up and coerced? Yes. Were women sexually assaulted? Yes. Were women drugged and beaten? Yes. Was the entire vice market a coercive, manipulative, and exploitative industry? I don't know if I would go that far. So, you know what? This is the perfect time to do this. Before we go any further, let me put a few things in plain English. Was prostitution at this time, say circa 1890 to 1910, free from danger and coercion? No. That's obvious. Were numerous brothels owned by women who provided useful services to their workers? Yes. Have those all but disappeared in America? Yes. Was that largely an effect of the wave of anti-vice activism which rode the wave of progressive reform and white slavery polemicizing? Among other things, yes. Arguably, the white slave panic of 1910 to 1917 has had a negative effect on sex workers and gender and race relations in America. To illustrate that point, I would like to recount the story of the Everly Club, a case study that is situated at the right place at the key moments. The Everly Club was a bordello that opened its doors in 1900. Its proprietors were sisters, Mina and Ada Everly, whose surname was actually Lester. But as the story goes, their chosen last name of Everly came from their grandmother's letter salutation, Everly Yours, as the story goes. The Everly Club is one of those American establishments so ubiquitous in its field and talked about that it sits at the intersection of history and mythology. So I'll note what is what where appropriate. The sisters were born in Louisville, Kentucky in the immediate post-Civil War period. The sisters married brothers, but they turned out to be violent and abusive brutes, so those marriages dissolved. The sisters followed up these failed and ended marriages by working as prostitutes in Nebraska, where they saved their money and invested their inheritances and savings into opening their own brothel in Omaha, Nebraska. Within two years, the sisters cut a profit, closed their doors in Nebraska, 
and relocated to the south side of Chicago where they opened the infamous Everly Club. It was an opulent ordeal, one that rivaled the storied bordellos of Europe, and one that certainly elevated the craft of brothel-keeping beyond most of its American counterparts. Unlike many of the brothels found throughout the U.S., the Everly Club had a strict procedure for hiring new workers. According to Ada Everly, as quoted by Karen Abbott in her book Sin in the Second City, quote, I talk with each new applicant myself. She must have worked somewhere else before coming here. We do not like amateurs. Inexperienced girls and young widows are too prone to accept offers of marriage and leave. We always have a waiting list. To get in, a girl must have a pretty face and figure, must be in perfect health, and must look well in evening clothes. If she's addicted to drugs or to drink, we do not want her. There is no problem in keeping the club filled, and keep it filled they did. And while opulence is the best word, it is still an understatement. According to PBS's City of the Century, the interior of the Everly Club was of, quote, silk curtains, damask easy chairs, oriental rugs, mahogany tables, gold-rimmed china and silver dinnerware, perfumed fountains, in every room a $15,000 gold-leafed piano for the music room, mirrored ceilings, a library filled with finely bound volumes, an art gallery featuring nudes and gold frames, no expense was spared. While the heavyweight boxer Jack Johnson, more on him later, thought the $57 gold spittoons in his cafe were worth boasting about, the patrons of the Everly Club were obliged to expectorate in $650 gold cuspidors. The Everly Club was in fact a gaudy circus, an ostentatiously ornamented scene of frantic and noisily intrusive activity, and one that some people would pay through the nose just to be a part of. With an admission fee of $10, which is steep at the time, you could find yourself dropping $50 on a single dinner, which is the equivalent of spending about $1,200 on dinner today. On a single dinner, $1,000. $200. That's on top of the $10 fee to get in. And the dinners themselves were at the pinnacle of opulence, featuring a variety of birds, pheasants, quail, ducks. You also had lobsters, clams, and oysters. The dinners matched the tone of the club. So before you even reach the top-billed attraction of the brothel, you've already shelled out ballpark 60 bucks, which in the early 1900s was not an amount to scoff at. But the price tag of visiting the Everly Club was part of its appeal. For as according to Herbert Ashbery's book, The Underworld of Chicago, the Everly Club was, quote, the most notorious, the most luxurious, and at the same time the most consistently profitable bordello that the United States and probably the rest of the world has ever seen. You don't get to be known as the most notorious and the most luxurious and the most profitable unless you won do something that the other clubs are not doing. Two, it's got to be expensive, because expensive makes it prohibitive, and prohibitive makes it mysterious, and mysterious makes it notorious, makes it luxurious, and makes it the most consistently profitable bordello that the United States and probably the rest of the world has ever seen. You see, there were reputations and expectations to contend with. The Everly sisters seem to elevate prostitution to something decent and reputable. They tried to downplay the criminal and focus on the enterprise. They had an honest doctor attend to their workers. They paid fair wages. They actively railed against drugs and drug use and violence. All told, they raked in some $20 million adjusted for inflation. If brothels in America were built on a model that valued efficiency... The Everly Club bucked that trend by favoring fantasy, and it paid off. In a review for Karen Abbott's book, Sin in the Second City, New York Times book columnist Ada Calhoun perfectly summarized the atmosphere unique to the Everly Club. The, air quotes you can't see, butterflies, which is their way of referring to the girls, wore evening gowns, ate bonbons and read Balzac, 
The house boasted three-string orchestras and 30 opulent themed bedrooms decked out with extras like full-sized effigies of Cleopatra or a station for setting off firecrackers. The sister madams Ada and Mina Everly insisted that here, here being the Everly Club, a man would never feel rushed, cheated, disillusioned, or alone. As per the madams of the house, the women, or quote, butterflies, were supposed to be seen as models of class and sophistication. The Everly Club wasn't selling just sex. It wasn't selling music. It wasn't selling food. It wasn't selling its bar. It was selling fantasy. However, sometimes it seemed to descend into a nightmare. I'd like to further illustrate that point with two anecdotes about the club. The first involves perhaps the most rip-roaring party I've ever read about involving German royalty, and the second about the murder involving the heir to a massive fortune. Both stories center around the Everly Club and do an admirable job of illustrating the atmosphere in and around the club, especially in the press. These stories are meant to show you that dichotomy of fantasy and nightmare. Anecdote 1 centers on a party for Prince Henry of Prussia. So it was the 3rd of March, 1902, and stopping in Chicago along his tour of the United States was Prince Henry of Prussia, the brother of German Kaiser Wilhelm II. Remember how I said the Everly Club was one of those American establishments so ubiquitous in its field and talked about that it sits at the intersection of history and mythology and that I'd note what is what where appropriate? Well, this is an appropriate place to remind you that this story is likely sensationalized by members of the press, who, by the way, were given discounts at the Everly Club, which is a practice that likely led to its reputation being established in popular media and built and kept in the public eye, right? Anyway, Prince Henry was given the royal treatment. And that's not an exaggerated statement. I mean that literally, while visiting Chicago, the prince was treated to parades, multiple receptions, a banquet, concerts. But alas, as the story goes, Prince Henry wanted to visit the Everly Club, which by now has become a legend even in Europe. It was determined that the girls of the Everly Club would take that night to celebrate Dionysus, who, as you may know, is the Greek god of wine, winemaking, grape cultivation, fertility, ritual madness, theater, and religious ecstasy. To celebrate him is to essentially celebrate a good time, and as I was not there, I can't speak for Prince Henry, but I think the Dionysus celebration of the Everly Club would be considered a good time. Good, at least, meaning not boring. The house band was playing, the ladies were dancing, reportedly one got atop a table, her slipper flew off, knocked over a bottle of champagne, which filled the slipper with bubbly, and as the story goes, one member of the royal party proceeded to drink the champagne from the slipper because he said the woman should never have a wet foot, whatever the hell that means. The next parts, I'll leave to your imagination, but I can assume the night ended with more than just table dances. The Everly Club could elevate a knight, even for royalty, to something of fantasy, right? These crazy, raucous parties for Greek gods and table dances and champagne and bubbly everywhere and bands playing firecrackers being set off, 30 rooms filled with people screwing right, left, and right, the bars hopping, the foods coming out, clams and oysters, quail, duck, lobster, steaks... It was just a crazy time. And crazy times, of course, build legends, so it's hard to differentiate what was what. It seems to be agreed upon that Prince Henry did visit the Everly Club. There was a huge party, but the details of the night are lost to history. And that was probably on purpose, because I'm assuming German royalty doesn't want to spend too much time talking about how he got it on in a club, right? Anecdote two 
centers on the murder of Marshall Field Jr. Who is Marshall Field Jr., you may ask? He was the heir to a department store fortune. Marshall Fields was a Chicago-based department store that grew into a chain which was ultimately bought up by Macy's. If you are looking for a rough estimate of his wealth, just know that he was able to make frequent visits to the Everly Club without seeing much of a worrying change in his accounts. He had an immense amount of wealth at his disposal. However, that still could not cushion him from sorrow, perhaps, because as the newspapers reported on November 23rd, 1905, he shot himself with a new automatic revolver that he was cleaning, and it was said he was going to Wisconsin for a hunting trip, right? So the question is in the press, did Marshall Phil Jr. shoot himself on purpose? Did he attempt to commit suicide? Or was this an accident? That's the 1905 news. He's rushed to the hospital, but ultimately, he dies. Newspapers then insist that the shot was accidental, and the story kind of falls off there. Then, in the Los Angeles Times, in 1913, we get the headline, Woman of the Night Tells Weird Story, Slew a Former Husband, and Says She Killed Young Field. The local Chicago government, of course, makes an emphatic denial that this woman of the night, her name was Vera Scott, they deny that Vera Scott or any other person figured into the death of Marshall Field Jr. And the story progresses. Of course, it's too hot of a story for the newspapers to put down. So now we have this third question. We have Marshall Field Jr., the heir to a terrific fortune, fatally wounded in his home, gun at his feet, apparently an accident, or perhaps a suicide. But yet, now we have a lady of the night, Vera Scott, saying she killed him. But the municipal Chicago government, Chicago law enforcement, and Chicago papers emphatically deny that Vera Scott had a role to play. Why do they refuse to even look into this is now the next question that comes out, right? So then we see newspaper headlines saying the Field family gets special privileges in the newspaper because they're enormously rich. They have a big store and they spend money for advertising. So now we have a, we have a conspiracy forming, right? We have newspapers putting forward stories that Marshall Field Jr. was in fact shot by a prostitute that he met at the Everly Club. That's where the story goes next, by the way. Spoiler alert. That Marshall Field Jr. met a woman at the Everly Club. They go back to his house. She shoots him. However, the family doesn't want their son's name to be tarnished, don't want the family's name to be tarnished. So they say, no, no, it was an accidental death. He was cleaning his gun, right? Remember how I said the Everly Club is ubiquitous and it's the intersection between history and mythology it's the intersection of history, mythology, and conspiracy because the Marshall Field story has a lot of moving parts. And the last thing that the Everly Club needed at this time was bad press. Now there's questions being asked. Oh my gosh, did one of the workers at the Everly Club murder Marshall Field Jr.? See, this is vice run amok. Or perhaps he shot himself and it was an accident, you know. So it, no one's certain about anything at this point. But anti-vice activists are pretty sure that the Marshall Field case is an open and shut one about vice run amok. So from the death of Marshall Field Jr. on, the Everly Club took a turn, a turn toward decline. Now that isn't a direct consequence of the death of Marshall Field Jr., but it had to have an effect. Bribes and favors are what kept the Everly Club on the up and up. And as the negativity around your establishment builds, and more people in the wrong circles hear about it, well, those bribes and favors get steeper, and well, less likely to do the trick. 
right? So when newspapers are putting out articles about how rich families are getting favors taken to them and vice is running amok, right? No one is going to be quite ready to take your bribe, especially when people are talking about so, you know, flippantly in the press about bribes and favors for rich families and rich establishments. The club does decline and eventually buckles under the overwhelming weight of anti-vice activism in Chicago. Ultimately, the sisters cut their losses with the Everly Club and live the rest of their lives in anonymity. Never to own a brothel again, never to work in the prostitution business again. And as is rather obvious at this point of the episode, anti-vice activism did not stop and start in Chicago's red light district. That said, it feels like an appropriate time to talk about Jack Johnson. The boxer, not the singer. Oh, God, no. Honestly, if you like the singer Jack Johnson, ugh, I, I really don't care. He's the songwriting equivalent to shuffleboard or banana pancakes. No, I want to talk about the first African-American heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Johnson. I said earlier we would revisit him, so here we are. Let me first preface this segment by saying... Me giving you this abridged version of Jack Johnson's entanglement with the Mann Act does not do justice to this complex and monumental character. Daniele Bolelli's podcast, History on Fire, has a terrific three-part series on Jack Johnson. If your interest is even partially piqued by what will follow here, you should definitely check it out. Daniele Bolelli's History on Fire. It's one of my big influences of my it's one of the big influences on my own podcasting. If we were to do a Foucault-style genealogy of the my thoughts on podcasting. Daniele Bolelli is a chapter in that book, so check him out. But while we are still in that gray area of off-topic and tangential relation, my personal favorite anecdote about Jack Johnson is this... Well, he's a penchant for fast cars, right? He lives a flamboyant and extravagant lifestyle, as he should with the vast amounts of wealth that he wins from his boxing from his own club that he owns a cafe in Chicago anyway he likes to buy fast cars and fast cars in the early 1900s go what I don't know 40 50 miles an hour at best anyway he's speeding in the south at the height of the Jim Crow era right and he's pulled over by a police officer I want to say this is in Mississippi but don't quote me on that but I know he's in the deep south and he's pulled over by a police officer and the police officer says you were speeding you know how fast you were going and Jack John says yeah I know how fast I was going and he finds him $50, a $50 speeding ticket. And this is still the time where you could pay police officers your fines directly. So Jack Johnson hands him a $100 bill. And the police officer says, $100? I'm not going to make change for this. I can't make change. I don't have change on me. I'm a police officer. And Jack Johnson says, I know, I know, I know. I'm giving you this $100 because in a couple hours, I'm going to be coming back the same street, going the same speed, and don't even bother pulling me over. <laughs> you see, that's the kind of character... Jack Johnson was. That's why, as complex as he is, because he has a dark side, I still think he's an interesting and important figure to study. However, he is one of those individuals that looms so large he's at that intersection of history and mythology, where we must ask whether we are sure he did this or said this. We certainly hope he did to this police officer, because that would make him even more of the quintessential badass, but did it go down exactly as I told it? Let's chalk this up to more of a Herodotus type of history than, say, uh, Jonathan Spence. That said, in 1910, shortly after Johnson retained his title as the first black world heavyweight champion by defeating the once undefeated out-of-retirement former champ Jim Jeffries, the great white hope as the media described him, race riots exploded, and law enforcement took an even closer look at Jack Johnson. As Aaron Blakemore wrote in her article, The White Slavery Law that brought down Jack Johnson is still in effect. Quote, law enforcement took a closer look at Johnson, who was known for his flamboyant behavior and lavish spending. This behavior had long rankled those who thought an African-American man should know his, quote, place and stay in it. And Johnson's open relationship with white women were considered a slap in the face to racial norms. Shortly after his wife's suicide, Jack Johnson crossed state lines with his girlfriend Lucille Cameron, right around the time that Lucille Cameron's mother accused Johnson of kidnapping her daughter. 
Now, law enforcement finally had the excuse they wanted, the excuse they needed, to invoke the Mann Act against Jack Johnson. And he will ultimately go to prison for crossing state lines with his girlfriend in a consensual relationship. This wasn't a kidnapping case. This wasn't a vice case. This was an example of institutional, of legal racism. They, being the law enforcement agencies that were involved in this case, built a suit to put Jack Johnson in prison for nothing more than being a black man in a relationship, in a consensual relationship with a white woman. But what really got a lot of law enforcement agencies is that he was the world heavyweight champion. The case was meant to look into Johnson's relations with white women and have the jury convict him due to that imagined immorality. However, Lucille Cameron would not testify against Johnson. But prosecutors discovered that Cameron was likely once a prostitute and used that to undermine her credibility. See, there's that, there's that little piece, that lingering piece from the Everly Club days, from the, the anti-Vice Chicago days, still finding its way in this Man Act case. The jury was convinced and convicted Johnson to a year and day in prison. Johnson refused to serve that sentence and lived abroad for a few years. He went to Canada, he went to Europe, he did fights overseas, but in 1920, he returned to the United States and served his sentence of one year and one day. This is the Mann Act, in effect. This is what the White Slavery Traffic Act looks like, in effect. It was meant to stop vice and trafficking, but really it was an excuse to prosecute, prosecute black men in consensual relationships with women. However, it didn't stop there. In 1944, the Mann Act was invoked to prosecute Charlie Chaplin, because he bought his girlfriend a train ticket, and the train crossed state lines. Again, to quote Aaron Blakemore, quote, These days the Mann Act is still in force. She wrote this article in 2019. Again, quote, These days the Mann Act is still in force, though it's been stripped of gender-specific language and updated to clarify that it's only applicable to sexual activity that's considered criminal. That put a stop to its use to punish extramarital affairs, immoral conduct like premarital sex, and interracial relationships. But though its meaning has changed, the legacy of the Mann Act persists. There you have it. The Mann Act, the White Slave Traffic Act, was used not just for commercialized vice, but think way back to that Supreme Court ruling on it. It was used to punish extramarital affairs. You couldn't cheat. It was illegal. It was illegal to have premarital sex across state lines. It was illegal to have an interracial relationship that crossed state lines. What is that? Why is that a law? Why are we legislating people's sexual affairs with consenting adults? Quite frankly, and here's my bias, I think it's ridiculous. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump recently pardoned Jack Johnson, 72 years after the man's death, due to his conviction being, to quote President Trump, what many view as a racially motivated injustice. Of course, what else could it be? That said, Jack Johnson was a complicated figure who, according to many sources, physically abused his girlfriends and his wives, but the case wasn't about that. The case was about that he engaged in interracial relationships while he was the heavyweight champion of the world, while he had a target on his back. But if you want to hear more about that, you can check it out on the podcast History on Fire by Daniele Bolelli. It's a terrific podcast, terrific three-part series, about three hours long, all told. I highly suggest it. So we're, we're wrapping this up. We're near the end of the show. And this is, I guess, the time where I will come at you with some conclusions. I, my thoughts on, on the White Slave Traffic Act. However, the episode wasn't supposed to end here. I originally intended to discuss the rise of pimps and what they represented. We would discuss examples, and I would probably talk about Iceberg Slim, but I realized that pimping is its, its own episode and not a simple 10-minute wrap-up to this. So you can expect to see more about pimping in a later episode, I promise. 
But as I said, white slavery or white slave traffic as a rhetorical device had a short half-life. The latter half of the 1910s saw doubt cast on the validity of these white slave narratives. People grew suspicious that it was nothing more than a rhetorical device, which it likely was. It was hyperbolic, right? After the Supreme Court ruling on other immoral purposes, the prosecution of white slavery and of prostitution largely fell. The white slavery and the prostitution part went to the wayside. The act kind of reconstituted itself and was invoked for increasingly domestic issues. The term white slavery goes the way of the dodo bird during World War I, but the Mann Act persisted, still today. Between 1921 to 1936, the FBI investigated somewhere in the ballpark of 47,500 Mann Act cases, most of which were domestic issues that didn't have much to do about prostitution. And it's the FBI doing it, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, involved in people's extramarital affairs or interracial relationships. In short, the issues discussed here are human rights issues. Perhaps the answer was never to enforce anti-vice and punish all those involved. Given my perspective, I'd argue that opening up educational access, especially at the higher levels, and providing equal protection under law for all women would have been a more effective cause to get behind but it makes sense that I would say that. So what are my conclusions? It cannot be stressed enough that the ultimate irony of the anti-vice enforcement and activism of the early 1900s was that it created the conditions ideal for the very criminals it wanted to pursue to multiply and prosper, thus driving prostitution underground only succeeded in making the profession monumentally more dangerous for the sex worker. The wave of anti-vice activism, when it settled, had displaced women the whole country over into coercive and exploitative situations. How can we excuse that? How can we pretend that the White Slave Traffic Act had any legislative merit? Arguably, we can't. However, with any critique of any system, it's much easier for me to yell, fuck the system, with both my middle fingers up, than it is for me to provide any prescriptions about what a just system would look like. If we were discussing human suffering and its intersection with sex work, I bet we see positive change if we legalized prostitution and allowed sex workers to unionize, thus making it so exploitative pimps and lowlifes are the ones facing penalties and not the other way around. We need to remove the structures in place that allow for women to become victims of circumstances that force them into prostitution. Remove those forces, and we are making progress. But if that sounds like it would make too much sense, or perhaps maybe it's too simple of an answer, you know, it probably is. This proposal would mean a total reversal of our traditional attitudes around sex work. That said... If you're a sex worker and you're listening, you have an ally in Dirty History. And as a podcast, I'll do whatever I can to spread awareness about what it means to be a sex worker in America. Because while there are plenty of caricatures and horror stories, we need more true-to-life, educational outreach-type programs to combat any of the noisy nonsense around our oldest profession. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been another episode of Dirty History. And if you like what you heard here, you could find out more on our website, dirtyhistorypod.com. Of course, you could follow us on the social medias, Instagram at dirtyhistorypod, Twitter at poddirty, and Facebook, Dirty History Podcast. This show is produced by Muckraker Media, a nonprofit organization aimed at open access content across new media platforms. Shows like this, shows like That's BS, Plato's Cave, Mind Theater, of course, comedian A.J. Bove's podcast, Work in Progress. The main theme for our podcast is the song Martial Law by Mephisto Feliz. Our intro track is Crooked Straight by Mild Wild. And our show's art director is in-house renaissance man Woodrow Cower. Any graphics you see, any cover art, that's him. And again, this show would not be possible 
without supporters like you, without supporters on our Patreon, without people sharing the show to people they think would be interested. So thank you. Again, this has been Dirty History. I'm your host, Thomas Thompson, and I'll talk to you soon.